chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 is where we will begin. A couple of the adult leaders this week, last weekend asked me to let you know thanks for sharing me. I said I'd pass the message along, but I'm pretty sure it goes both ways. I think they're like, thanks for taking in for a weekend. Proverbs 8 is where we'll be. I can remember actually this was uh, the first Sunday that I was an actual pastor here, right? I'd preached here before. The first Sunday I was an official pastor. We had the two services like we do now, but they had different sermons going on. And so the first service we were preaching through the book of Proverbs, and my first sermon my first sermon there was on Proverbs 8. In the second series we were teaching through Ephesians, and my first um, sermon there was in Ephesians and for the second service it was about marriage and so as a 17 year old learning how to shave I thought you know I'm very well equipped to nail this one as my first pastoral sermon um, and then in the, the Proverbs for the first section Proverbs 8 comes to us as probably the most controversial passage in Proverbs um, it's actually been the source for a lot of heresies throughout Christian history um, and so we'll read um, I don't think we'll get tripped up too bad We'll start in Proverbs 8, verse 22. I want to show you a couple things here. This is wisdom talking. Proverbs is mainly about wisdom, and wisdom is often personified in the book of Proverbs. She says this in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Now that word possessed is not negative. It's not like demon possessed or something like that. Think begotten. At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust with the world, wherein he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside like a master workman. Now was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Now, because of the things wisdom is said uh, about wisdom, and, and the wisdom does say in the book of Proverbs, Christians throughout history have seen Wisdom as some sort of personification of Jesus Christ himself. Um, not a direct correlation, perhaps, but as a strong symbol and pointer. Um, and so one of the things we see is wisdom says she participated in creation. She was there at the beginning. And then God, as a master builder, laid out his plans and drew where the seas would be and what height and shape the mountains would take. That she had a role she was playing a part. And Christians have seen this in Jesus. And in the New Testament, we speak about this language like this when it comes to Jesus. That God created all things through Jesus. That the Word was there with Jesus in the beginning. Father, Son, and Spirit existing for eternity. And one of the very earliest Christian heresies is a, a heresy called Arianism. Which believes that Jesus is somehow divine, but not fully divine. That he was the first created thing. So God had existed for all of eternity, and before he did anything else, he created Jesus. And he said, this will be my guy. And then through Jesus, he creates the rest of the world. One of the proof texts for this heresy was this passage, Proverbs 8. 
was saying wisdom equals Jesus, wisdom equals begotten at the beginning of time, made before everything else. Now, the early Christians sniffed this out as a heresy because if Jesus is the first created thing, Jesus is not fully divine. One of the things about being divine is that you're not created. You are eternal. And if Jesus wasn't divine, the Christians said, we haven't been saved. A Jewish man died on a cross and resurrected, but if he wasn't fully divine, then the full grace and transformation of God hasn't fully encountered the, the hum, human nature and, and the human condition. So when we see this first verse here, the Lord possessed, let's read, begotten me at the beginning of his work. Here's what Christians have said. We've said, it is true actually that Jesus the Son is begotten from the Father. But it's true in a deeper, eternal theological sense than it is in temporal, historic, human sense. So we, we would say Jesus is eternally begotten. Have you heard that phrase before? Used about Jesus, eternally begotten? When we study the creeds, we say this about Jesus, he was eternally begotten. And, and what we mean by this is that in some true sense, Jesus does come from the Father. The early church fathers imagined the Father is like a well of divinity. And springing out of it comes the Son. But this is not something that happened at one point during time. For all of eternity, there's been this begottenness. Does that make sense? It's not like when I was begotten and beforehand there was no mic. And then I was begotten and there was a mic. There's been this eternal relationship that the Trinity has had for all of creation. Now, the wisdom passage continues the celebration of creation, wisdom's role in creation. And I want to point out here, verse 30. I was beside him like a master workman. I was daily his delight. And then this phrase right here, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in its inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. The phrase at the end of verse 30, rejoicing before him always, is the Hebrew word for playing. Sometimes it's associated with laughing. Most of the time, though, it's pretty literally associated with the play of children. Innocent, joyous, free play. In fact, the same phrase is used in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, about a vision he has. I'll read it to you. This is what the Lord says. Once again, old men and women will walk Jerusalem's streets with their canes. They'll sit together in the city squares. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls at play. So we look at Proverbs 8 and we get an unexpected view of God as playful. As a God who's in creation, as a playful God, creating a playful creation. We talk a lot about God. We talk a lot about God's attributes. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-powerful. He's loving, he's just, but very rarely do we ever talk about the playfulness of God. In fact, I was surprised researching this sermon that there's actually not much written out there about this. You could do this by yourself, go Google this phrase, and you'll find maybe three or four places that explore this idea. Some of them are blogs with like two or three paragraphs. Very few scholars have actually really kind of tried to dig into the playfulness found in creation that reflects to some extent the playfulness that is true about our creator. And it's true that if you look out into creation, what you find is a world filled with play. 
We'll go deeper into what play is in a moment, but just as a start, play is usually defined as something done just for the fun of it. It's something done that the purpose is itself. There's no greater purpose. So we go out and play Foursquare, not because this is part of the business plan, not because this is part of relationship building, but because it's fun. Play is, is a time where we get lost in time. We're sort of freed up from the constraints of time. It comes inherent to us. Play can have a purpose, but even when it does have a purpose, we typically do it if it didn't. If you have animals, you've seen this close and personal in your house. Lindsay and I have two puppies, and they love to play. They love to play with each other. They love to play with us. There's a very, very strict routine at our household, which is an alarm goes off. We ignore the alarm. The puppies do not ignore the alarm. <laughs> it's time to get up. They know that I sleep through just about anything, so they go to Lindsay and start licking her up and we're getting her up out of the bed. And it's very, very strict. Food first. We're hungry, breakfast. Then to the back door. Let's go outside and do our business. And then let's find our favorite toys and start to play. And then after about an hour of play, it's let's nap again. Get back in bed. Let's go back to sleep together. If you've got children, you've seen this. If you've got young children, grandchildren, you've seen this instinctual play. It seems like kind of built into the DNA of creation. Scholars have noticed this often and in, in many ways. One says, if you observe the exuberance and extravagance of nature, the sight of the countless leaves twinkling in the sun, the profusion of colors in the birds and the flowers, the cacophony created through the music and singing of creation, the abundance of fruit and grain. Surely the creator God was in a playful mood when he fashioned it all. Creation reflects truths about God. And the truth that we live in a playful world, that play is built into what our world is meant to be like, where joy is found in our world, reflects something deep and true about who our God is. It was Thomas Aquinas, a very important medieval scholastic Christian scholar, who said this, God plays, God creates playing, and man should play if he is to live as humanly as possible and to know reality, since it was created by God's very own playfulness. There was an uh, important uh, study done. So play has its own field of discipline now that's arose around it. There's um, lots of books about play. Um, businesses bring in speakers to come and talk about the importance of play in people's lives. It's a big part of psychology and psychiatry these days. Um, and there was something that happened in, I think it was 1992. Um, a man was out in Alaska, and he had sled dogs, and... Uh, he kind of has his home base, and there are polar bears around, right? And so he is always kind of on watch because polar bears have been known to attack dogs, and usually that ends up in them being eaten by the dog. And, and this one afternoon, he was sitting around and maybe wasn't paying quite as attention to what his dogs were doing as he should have, and he looked up, and he saw what he thought was a dead dog, or a dog about to be dead. It was in the grasp of a polar bear. At uh, that moment, he knew there was nothing he could do about it. In that moment, he had that kind of sinking feeling that he maybe was about to witness something he had hoped not to witness. 
And then for the first time in recorded history, over the next 30 minutes, he watched the polar bear and the dog play together. They were play biting each other's necks. The polar bear rolled on his back with his arms up in the air and let the dog roll around on top of him. Even more interestingly, this was during a season of time in which polar bears were literally starving to death because of some of the conditions. And so these polar bears were roaming with this instinctual hunger. And yet, these two animals came up to each other and their, all their instinctual, instinctual natures, characteristics, are overcome in this moment of beautiful prey, uh, of prayer, uh, of play, which can be prayer, so we're okay. <laughs> now this actually became a tradition. Every year the polar bear would migrate and would come out and, and have a little fun with this dog. Um, we've seen this now throughout all of creation, right? Um, creation is just teeming with this kind of playfulness. One more place I'll show you um, this. Psalm 104, if you'll flip with me there. Psalm 104, and a, a passage that sometimes is overlooked. It's another celebration of creation. A very interesting one to me. It'll be on page 503 on those black hardbacks you have. We'll look at Psalm 104, verse 24 through 26. It reads this. O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Now, two things I want to notice about this. Again, it's a celebration of creation and the sea and what is inside of the sea. Most of us remember, because I mention it over and over and over and over again, the sea is often a symbol of chaos and evil. But more importantly than that, the sea was created by God. This is actually the most important truth in the scriptures about any creature. It's more important than your actions or the results of your actions, no matter how chaotic or evil or how blissful and productive is the fact that you were created by God. This is the most true statement about you, no matter what might ever happen no matter what situation you might find yourself in. So the sea is created. It refers back to this day of creation when God creates the sea and then fills it with all these living creatures. I don't know if you're like me. I love watching these like nature documentaries. I particularly like the ones above the, uh, that go under the water. Look at the sea and the ocean. Um, one of the like, little half-hearted dreams I have, if I ever had to do something other than pastoring, would be to be some kind of like, marine biologist. There's so much of the ocean we still don't know about. We still haven't explored. There's so many amazing, weird, awesome creatures. And teeming with creatures, the sea is created by God. And if you've seen schools of fish or dolphins or orca whales, you've seen this kind of joyful play. It seems to, again, have no purpose. Like with the polar bears, they once went to an animal behaviorist, one of these scholars of play, and he asked, what, what, what's the evolutionary purpose here? Why are they playing as grown adult bears? And the behavior said, it's fun. He said they like it. It's pleasurable to them. He said, that's really the best scholarly answer I have for this. If you really pushed me, I might say 
it helps them you know continue their social skills and we see this with children a lot play helps them learn to be social and learns how much you can rough house you know how to read body language things of that nature so for the most part you you look at this and it's just something that they enjoy in fact there's a species of whale i didn't bring the specifics um, but they found out a, a certain vocalization that kept hearing over and over and over again was not actually a form of communication. It's, it was a song that was being sung. And it's a song that's sung in that family of whales throughout time, over generations, and by each member of that family. And if you chart out the vocalizations of that song, it looks like a piece of music written by a composer. And if you put it next to one of the other whales singing the same song, it looks like you made a Xerox copy so that someone else could join the choir and could sing with you. Again, there seems to be no purpose here. This is not a survival thing. This is not a communication thing. This is a beauty thing. This is a, there's something extravagant, joyous, fun about the world God has created and entrusted to us. The, the second interesting thing, really interesting here, is Leviathan is mentioned. Leviathan is a sea monster. People understand Leviathan in different ways. More, like, we're pretty sure, right, Leviathan functions a lot like the sea as a symbol sometimes of chaos and evil. Um, we're not as sure whether Leviathan is taken from some of the other kind of mythologies in the ancient Eastern world and is seen as kind of a more literal sea monster that we might see in in a movie today, or whether this is, you know, their way of describing, say, an orca whale or another animal that is so impressive like that. <coughs> but we're told that even Leviathan is created in the sea to play. In a way, this intensifies the beauty of creation and the playfulness found within it. Even Leviathan, even the sea monster, has some space to just have fun, just enjoy what God has put around him. You might have a note in your Bible, which would take you down and, and show you there's an alternate way to read that phrase, actually. The Hebrew could be understood, so instead of saying, the Leviathan which you formed to play in it, could read the Leviathan which you formed to play with. There's a very viable option that perhaps the psalmist is saying Leviathan even has a role to play in God's playfulness. As dangerous as he might be, as, un, as, as uh, unexpected as he can act, God himself is involved in this um, act of, of playfulness. Um, these two truths I think you find in scripture, we don't often pay attention to those. I think there's an element of God's playfulness that corresponds with his nature, and I think <laughs> Much more seriously, the world that we find ourselves in is teeming with playfulness. Play is defined by scholars of play as autotelic. Telos means end or goal, auto means ourselves. And what this basically means is there's no purpose beyond itself. True play, real play, is not part of a plan or a strategy or a way to manipulate a situation. It's something that you do just because of what it is in its very self. And what we found is that play is important. This is what I found in my life a few years ago. I was working at a high school, and I loved working at this high school, and there were a lot of things I did not like about this high school. I mean, many things I didn't like about the high school. I didn't like preparing things for the high school, writing lesson plans, thinking about stuff like that. I didn't like 
um, you know, administration and the different things we got to do, you know, as like actual professionals, paperwork, things of that nature. I definitely didn't like the parents. <laughs> what I liked eventually, it took me a while to figure out, what I liked was almost every day I got to be silly. I got to laugh with a kid about something stupid that mattered nothing. Now we did a lot of things that didn't matter and a lot of things that were serious. But it was this aspect of play. And there's a time where I left the school and then didn't really have that. And I was hanging around adults. You might know this. Adults are pretty boring. They kind of grow out sometimes with this playfulness. And then I was kind of by myself. And, and I discovered what play scholars would tell you, which is that the opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. In fact, Fortune 500 companies pay millions of dollars to bring in these play scholars to teach their employees how to play, to insert play therapy, to create businesses where you can play as you work, it improves your work, those kinds of things. Think like Silicon Valley, Google, they have all those weird stuff in their, their offices, right? Play helps us come to a richer and deeper experience of life. Theologically, when we think about it, I have to think we have to take it as a serious topic and not a frivolous one. When play is denied for whatever reason, um, mood disorders rise, moods go down, they darken, optimism goes away, senses of pleasure start to leave. There's laboratory evidence now that you build up a play deficit the same way you build up a sleep deficit, which is interesting. I don't know if you're like me, but I owe more money to sleep or more time to sleep than I think I'll ever owe money to any organization in the world. Um, and so I'd like to keep my play deficit a little bit lower here. There's lots of other scientific things about play. Physical play actually we've found can forestall mental decline in Alzheimer's and dementia patients. Um, lots of studies have suggested that. Um, in every species of animal it seems to be built into the very core of who we are. And so as we look about play and we talk about it in the context of the spiritual life, of our Christian life, the question I want to ask is, are Christians too serious? Are Christians too serious? Christianity is a serious thing. The gospel is a serious thing. The world is a serious place. But the world is also a joyful place. You and I are creatures. We have to accept that. We have to accept that we were designed to function in certain ways. And we have to accept that we weren't designed to be serious 24-7. We have to accept the fact that if you take a person who goes, has that stamina to go 15 years of just being serious and denying any sort of real and true and free play, that they have a midlife crisis. They have to go back and learn where it is they find joy. And play and friendship. We talk a lot about the attributes of God. I wonder if we don't spend as much time on the joyfulness of God, on the laughter of God, and perhaps even the playfulness of God. Some people think I'm funny. My wife once said, You're a lot funnier on stage than in person. Which I thought was true, but hurtful. Um, <laughs> 
And someone the other day was, was joking with me. I was like, you got speaking down. Like, you should just be like a Christian comedian. And I was like, just think about those two terms. I know they, they exist, but Christians aren't particularly known for laughing at themselves. Like, I'm not sure it would go well if I just got in front of them and made fun of them for an hour. <laughs> Pretty serious group. A lot of sacred things you don't want to touch there. One of the things I love about our church, the culture of our church, is that we're a church that laughs. We're a church that doesn't take things too seriously. We are a church that's serious. We're a church where if you're there in leadership, there's arguments. There's deep disagreements about the way things should happen, about what might be right biblically or theologically. But if you come to an elders meeting, if you come to a board meeting, if you come to the prayer circle, people involved in service before the service begins, you're probably going to hear some laughter and some, some ribbing of people. And there's going to be moments of, of, of play and, and playfulness. So playing and sporting is very well connected. Technically, sport would be a subset of play where physical skills are more involved and more defined rules are present. But, but here's what I would really want you to, to leave with in terms of like a thought from the message, okay? Play is, by definition, an unnecessary but meaningful act. Now watch this. You, by definition, are an unnecessary but meaningful being. No one needs you. I mean, I would be sad because I know you now. But we aren't necessary. God did not have to create us. Yet, God finds meaning in us. We live meaningful lives. Our choices are meaningful. Our relationships are meaningful. Play echoes our identity in such a unique way that we might say when we play, we are touching into and living out one of our deepest characteristics of our identities. We might say that God enjoys watching his creation play. St. Irenaeus once said in the 2nd century that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. If it's true that in moments of play, creation finds life and fullness of life, then it perhaps it's true that God desires humans to play and finds joy and even finds glory in that. And so we'll wrap up today with a few questions. I want you to take an inventory of play in your life. Perhaps it's an easier thing for you than it is for me. I get bogged down and I have to be reminded and I have to force myself to go to situations where I can laugh and I can do silly things and I can get out of myself for just a little bit. The Sabbath really is, is one of these commands, right? We think oftentimes that the most important thing about us is our work, what we do, what we produce, what we're able to change. Really, if you look at it in the scriptures, the biggest command about work is to not do it. Take a day off. And that day is not for you to just sit there like a monk. The day is for you to celebrate, to be joyful, to play a little bit. So questions. What games do you enjoy? What activities or a way that you find you can engage in the sweetness of life? Where do you, where can you turn to rediscover the goodness and the playfulness that we find at the heart of God? And we want to be clear, right? We live in a serious world. We live in a serious time. 
the actions we take as Christians are serious. They have eternal implications. But I would argue because these things are so serious and important, it makes our attention and commitment to instituting areas and times of play in our life even that more important. Where are you this morning? Is joy hard for you to find? You're not alone. There's a lot of us. If you think back to your childhood, I bet you can imagine two or three or four places where you would go and play, things that you would do that brought you joy. I think one of the healthiest things humans can do sometimes is get a little silly and go do that again. Go experience that. If you've got kids, man, you have it made. <laughs> Take some time off from what you're doing and play. See in their joy. The joy of creation that God has, has given us. So this morning I invite you to take an inventory of your life. Think about how much play can bring in terms of your relationship with God, in terms of your own joy in life, and in terms of your own spiritual formation. I happen to believe Jesus was a playful person. There's a story I enjoyed from the Gospels where the disciples, uh, who are professional fishermen, spend all night trying to fish and find nothing. And Jesus standing at the shore, this, this is like backseat driving, right? Says, hey guys, just throw it on the other side of the boat. And you can imagine, like, that's, he doesn't know how to fish. That's not how it works. <laughs> if they were just over there, we'd probably find them too, right over here. And they do it, and it's filled with more fish than they'd had before. In fact, they can't even haul it back to shore. They have to be, people swim out and help them bring it back. And I can imagine Jesus chuckling, laughing, and saying, that was unnecessary, but it was meaningful. <laughs> Let's never get too serious. Let's tap into the joy and the love of the heart of God so that we can be equipped to be faithful, productive, and endure the moments in our life where we really need to step up in serious and important ways. We pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for our ability to just understand more about who we are as creatures and the ways that you've made us and the ways that we flourish in the, the boundaries and wisdom of creation. I pray that you would allow us to see your great love for us, the joy that you have, not only in creating us, but in seeing us live fully as your creatures and participating in your work of new creation. I pray that you would allow us to find the right balance of when to take ourselves seriously and when to be able to laugh at ourselves. I pray that you would, in all things, create in us the heart of Christ, that we might know the closeness to you that Christ knew, that we might be led by the Spirit the way Jesus was led by the Spirit, and that we might continue in our journey after you to find our new lives in the family of God, adopted sons and daughters. In the name of the Father, and the Spirit.
and the Son, all God's children pray, saying, Amen. Amen.